Uh, we'll now have the reading for today, which is from Psalm 32. And as usual, the words will appear on the screen behind me, but it may be helpful for you to have your own Bible open as we read. Psalm 32, a mascal of David. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all the day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time where you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the, in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Amen. This is the word of God. Well, uh, good morning, everyone. And uh, good to be back with you all. Good to see you all again. And uh, let me add my my welcome to to Peter's. If we haven't met before, my name's Johnny. I'm the pastor and part of the leadership team here at Hebron. And uh, if you're new um, or just visiting this morning, as I think some might be, perhaps uh, on holiday in the sunny city um, of Aberdeen, let me apologize for that. Um, that This is just what it's like, so enjoy it while you're here. Um, But we are very, very glad to have you with us. Please don't leave without saying hello to someone, unless you're keen to to do that and to slip out. Um, We'd really love to get to know you a bit better um, during your time with us today. Uh, As Peter's mentioned, we're continuing um, a summer series in the Psalms this morning. Um, with Psalm 32, which he's just read for us, which is super. Thank you, Peter. Let me encourage you, please, to have that open in front of you, if you're able to do that, as we think about it together over the next few minutes. Um, But before we delve into it in a bit more depth, let me ask for God's help. Let's pray. Our, Our God and Father, we thank you and praise you that by your grace, you have revealed yourself to us in your word, the Bible. And we ask that as we study that word together over the coming few minutes, you please give each of us attentive minds and teachable hearts. And ask that in the words that are spoken and that in the quiet of our hearts and minds, all that happens in this room over the coming few minutes would please bring glory to you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, um, just before Thomas Randell died in May 2020, his wife of uh, nearly 40 years asked some of his golfing friends and his co-workers to come and visit their home. They gathered to say goodbye to a man whom a number of them called one of the nicest people they'd ever met. He was a devoted family man. 
He was a keen golfer. He was known for his unwillingness to even bend the rules on the course. And a friend to so many that at his funeral the following week, there were queues outside the chapel. By the time of their visit, lung cancer had taken away his voice. And so they all left without knowing what Randell had only just confessed to his wife and children shortly beforehand. That for the preceding 50 years, Randell had been living a lie. He was, in fact, a fugitive, wanted in one of the largest bank robberies in the history of the state of Ohio. After the robbery, he'd created a new name, a new identity for himself. He'd moved to another part of the country, and he'd started a completely new life. No one knew what he'd really done. No one ever would have known. But from his deathbed confession... It seems that Randell had never truly left the guilt behind him, that he'd carried it around with him for all of those 50 years, and felt that he needed to get it off his chest while he still had breath to do so. Now, in one sense, of course, that was an extreme situation. But in another sense, I do wonder whether it is perhaps an example of something with which many of us are very familiar indeed. The crushing weight of a guilty conscience. Not resulting from a bank robbery, for most of us, I guess. Perhaps instead from the friend or family member whom we hurt with careless words spoken in the heat of the moment. Or the lie told in order to make life easier for us, but which we now seem to need to perpetuate if we're to avoid being found out. The lustful thought that turned into a lustful action and has perhaps done so many times and which we now live to deeply regret. It's all too common, I think, to carry around the regret of things done or said, whether big or small, like a constant and an unwelcome shadow over the back of our minds. Wouldn't it be just wonderful to be free of that? And not to have to wait until you're on your deathbed to do so. To be able to enjoy life without the weight of guilt dragging you down gnawing at you, wasting you away. Well, that is the prospect that's held out for us by Psalm 32, the psalm we're thinking about over the next few minutes. Psalm 32 is a psalm about forgiveness, but more particularly, it's a psalm about the blessing and the joy of experiencing forgiveness. Blessing and joy are definitely the tone of the psalm. Just notice that that's how the psalm is bookended, how it starts and ends. Verse 1, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven. Or verse 11, and how we finish, be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. The big objective of the psalm is to lead people into joy. And the way it does that is by leading them out of guilt. Not by ignoring it or downplaying it, perhaps. Not by rationalizing it. But by offering complete and full forgiveness from the one whom we've ultimately offended above all. From God himself. Now, that idea will apply in a couple of different ways this morning, I suspect, depending on on who you are as an individual. It it will apply to those of us who wouldn't describe ourselves as Christians this morning, perhaps as a completely new prospect. 
He might have wandered in here today expecting to be given a pep talk in how to be a better person or how to live a more moral life. Well, instead, I'm afraid you're going to be told that no matter how good a life you live, it'll never be quite good enough. And yet, nonetheless, you can know freedom and joy that comes from knowing you are forgiven. That is right at the heart of the Christian faith, the offer of a restored relationship with the God whom you've ultimately offended above all. That's one way in which this psalm will apply, and it will apply to to the Christian who perhaps knows sort of intellectually that they've been forgiven by God for their rebellion against him, but who still seems to carry that guilt around everywhere they go. That is a very, very common thing. If that idea resonates with you this morning, well, then I do pray, it's been my prayer this week, that thinking on Psalm 32 will be joy-giving, life-giving to you today, that you'll not only be reminded of the forgiveness available to you through Jesus, if that wasn't enough, but that you will experience that. You will know freedom and joy that can be yours in him. That's the psalmist's goal, I think, in Psalm 32, and so it's going to be ours over the next few minutes. We'll think about that under a couple of headings, the first of which is the joy of experiencing forgiveness, verses 1 to 5. Now, it's a bit of a caricature of our culture, I think, that we don't really have much of a moral conscience anymore, that every possible behavior is absolutely fine in the Western world, as long as you're being true to yourself. But actually, I really don't think that's the case. It isn't the case in public life, and you'll know that if you give any attention to the news each week. Whether it's a politician who has very publicly said one thing, and yet been found out in their private life to be living in a completely different way. Or the celebrity who perhaps tweeted something when they were 14, but now, years later, has been unearthed. Is found now to be less acceptable than than perhaps it was then, and finds that their whole career is in jeopardy. There are certain lines in the sand that people can't cross without being pilloried in our culture. The idea that there is transgression, that there is wrongdoing, well, it is alive and well in 21st century Scotland. So our culture's problem isn't that we don't have a conception of, of, of transgression, of wrongdoing, of sin even, to use that language. Our problem is that our conception of what that wrongdoing is, is very often skewed. It's anybody's guess what is or isn't acceptable in our culture in some instances. In fact, it sometimes seems to change from day to day. But the Bible isn't so uncertain, or so changeable, in fact. No, the Bible is crystal clear about our most fundamental wrongdoing. And I wonder if you noticed in verses 1 and 2 of Psalm 32 that that David, the author of this psalm, uses a number of different ideas to describe that problem. Notice he speaks, verse 1, of transgression. What does he mean by transgression? Well, the word here conveys a sort of rebellion. In this instance, a rebellion against the good and right rule of God. He then speaks, verse 1, of sin which is covered in this instance. What does he mean by sin? Well, the sense here is to miss the mark, to stray from doing the right thing. And then lastly, he speaks, verse 2, of iniquity. 
What's iniquity? Well, the word here means guilt, not the, the subjective feeling of guilt of which we've already spoken this morning, but the objective sense of being found guilty as happens in a court of law. There are three different angles on the same grim issue. And together they help to clarify what our real problem is. Not offending the standards of our culture, which often seem to change every five minutes. But offending the creator God, whose standards don't change. By rejecting him. By missing the mark or not living as he would have us live. By being found guilty before him. Now, a friend of mine once received a letter notifying him of a fine for driving in a bus lane. I should say that friend of mine isn't euphemistic for me. It is actually someone else I'm speaking about, but I'm trying to protect his anonymity. He was pretty cross about it, mainly because he had no recollection of having done any such thing. There was a link, though, in the letter he was sent to see evidence of his offence, which he duly clicked on and found a picture very clearly of his car sitting bold as brass in the middle of a bus lane. Now, he didn't even know there was a problem. He didn't feel any reason for remorse at all until he was shown the evidence. And I do wonder if the same might be said of some of us when it comes to Psalm 32, because it's just possible that as I've been speaking this morning and I've spoken about the feeling of guilt, that it sounds to you like somebody else's problem. Perhaps you don't feel very guilty about an awful lot just now. And yet, as things stand, whether we feel it or not, we are all guilty. We have all deeply offended our maker. Some of us feel that to a greater or lesser extent. Some of us feel it very acutely. Others have quite numb consciences to it. But we are in trouble nonetheless. The psalmist, though, quite like a number of us here this morning, I suspect, was not numb to it. Quite the opposite, in fact. For the psalmist, his guilt was crippling. He describes that in a very vivid way. Just notice that. Verse 3. My bones wasted away. Verse 4. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. It's a cloying draining, sapping thing. David, who wrote this psalm, had done wrong before God, knew he had done so, and it was causing him a great deal of pain. He felt that God's hand was heavy upon him. And I do wonder whether that might resonate with anyone here. I had a conversation with someone not too long ago, a Christian, who had very recently done something which she knew she should not have done. And she was really, really cut up about it, visibly very emotional, even as she was speaking to me. And she described to me how she thought that her life, well, the word she used was actually a bit of a write-off now. That she had so badly blotted her copybook that there was no hope for her anymore. Or I think of another situation, and please forgive me, I think I might have mentioned this one before. A man whom I know thought he had committed an unforgivable sin had spoken words to God whilst he was wrestling through pretty profound grief. And they were words for which he thought God could never forgive him. And that guilt just followed him around everywhere he went. Now, some of us feel our predicament just like that. Others of us might feel quite numb towards it. 
But we are all in trouble, whether we like to hear that or not. And yet, whilst all of that is true, whilst our problem is worse than we even fully know, that isn't the end of the story. And you'll have seen that in verses 1 and 2. Just notice what the psalmist says of the sin, the transgression, the iniquity. He says, verse 1, that transgression is forgiven. And the idea there is of, of wrongdoing being lifted up, like a huge weight being taken from your shoulders. He speaks, verse 1, of sin, of our missing the mark, being covered over. By which he doesn't mean that it's glossed over or that it's ignored. But in the sense that it is seen fully, but dealt with completely. And he speaks, thirdly, verse 2, of iniquity not being counted to us. And that idea is actually picked up by the Apostle Paul in the New Testament, where he likens it to a law court. Where someone who is found to be guilty as charged has that charge removed from them, is allowed to walk free. Now, notice each of those pictures are slightly different from one another, but they do overlap quite a lot. And to be honest, well, one on their own would probably have been enough to to do the job, to make the point the psalmist wants to make. But the reason the psalmist includes all three together is to show quite how full and free And liberating, this offer of forgiveness really is. Now, wouldn't you just love that for yourself? Being able to rest your head on the pillow at night without having to block out the guilt you might feel about your past. Knowing that at a most fundamental level, it has been dealt with. That is the prospect held out by the Christian faith. And if that prospect sounds too good to be true, well, then it's quite possible you're hearing me right. Because it is extraordinary good news. But it does all beg the question, how? How is it possible for that problem to be dealt with, for guilt to be removed? Well, that's where we turn next, and we'll spend the rest of our time thinking about that under our next heading, the means by which experiencing forgiveness is possible. Firstly, for the first time, verses 6 and 7. Now, in in the year 2012, a man called James Washington was in prison in Nashville when he suffered a heart attack. Thinking he only had moments left to live, he, he called a prison guard over to him. I've got something to tell you, he said. I have to get something off my conscience. I need you to hear this. I killed someone. Washington admitted to perpetrating a murder 17 years earlier and of disposing the evidence in a fire. And Washington confessed, believing that he wouldn't live long enough to face the consequences. But as it happened, inconveniently, really, he made a full recovery. And he ended up standing trial for the crime. He tried to recant his confession during the trial to say he didn't really mean it, but he was unsuccessful. And he was handed an additional 51 years in prison. Washington learned the hard way that the timing of a confession really matters. And in Psalm 32, David agrees. He says as much, actually, not because you might confess too early, And have to face the consequences. Quite the opposite in fact. He says that timing matters. Because you might well leave your confession too late. 
and therefore have to face the consequences. Notice that with me. Verse 5. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Now, the psalmist confessed, that's his experience, he received forgiveness at the end of verse 5, and he's therefore calling on everyone else to do the same. And yet there is an urgency about it, isn't there? Because, he says, there's a time when praying to God for forgiveness, asking for him to cover your sin, will find him. But by implication, there's also a time when it won't find him. And the consequences, he says, of confessing too late may well spell disaster. Some of you will remember in November 2021 that the UK entertained a particularly prickly visitor called Storm Arwen. Gale force winds wrought all kinds of havoc across the country. And I watched this past week an episode of the TV programme Trollerman. Some of you might have seen it. It's about the UK fishing fleet. It was filmed in November 2021. And uh, as the weather warnings spread through the fishing fleet of the UK of Force 9 Gales, uh, these guys were left standing on well, glorified pieces of metal, uh, being tossed around, absolutely ragdolled by the North Sea. And so even the most hardy of them, when they received news of the storms to come, they turned tail and they steamed as quick as they could for the harbour and for shelter. And that is the kind of picture the psalmist uses for the person who calls out to God for forgiveness in time. Of someone taking shelter from raging waters. Notice that again, verse 6. Therefore, let everyone who's godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely, in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. Now, the waters being referred to there aren't literal waters. He's using picture language, and it seems most likely it's a picture of the kind of thing we read about in the early chapters of the book of Genesis in the story of Noah. We tend to think of the story of Noah as being a children's story. Read it closely. You'll see that it's anything but. In Noah's day, things had really gone to pot. We're told, in fact, that the world was full of violence and that people were corrupted in all their ways. And God... The God who'd made them had had enough. He resolved to wash it all away in a great flood and to effectively start again with humanity. And so the waters in Genesis 6 to 9 were a mechanism of God's judgment. It was God dealing with transgression or iniquity or sin, to use the language of Psalm 32, by giving it all its due And that is the kind of prospect the psalmist is envisaging, I think, in Psalm 32. Because you see, the problem with unforgiveness isn't just that it makes us feel bad. That is a very real problem for many of us. That's the felt problem, certainly. But the real problem behind that one, the even deeper issue, is that that kind of unforgiveness leaves us in a whole lot of trouble. The Bible tells us that God is offended by our rebellion against him. Rightly so. And that one day he will return and we'll see justice done. We'll see transgression and sin and iniquity judged. And left to our own devices, that is the prospect that awaits all of us. 
But although things were pretty grim, really, in Noah's day, people weren't left to their own devices. Not entirely, at least. There was a refuge from the flood, a safe place to hide from God's anger, not a harbour, as Trollerman saw during Storm Arwen, but a boat, or perhaps more famously for some of us, an ark. And in much the same way, David tells us of a place of safety and of refuge and of forgiveness available today. Again, not in a harbour, nor even in a boat, but in God himself. Verse 7. You are my hiding place. You will protect me from trouble and surround me with songs of deliverance. See, David knew that that rescue, that refuge to be true in his own day, and we know it all the more clearly now. We've celebrated it this morning. We see it in the gospel accounts of Jesus' life. Where at the cross, Jesus bore in himself the consequences of human sin. See, the cross wasn't just a horrible spectacle because of the physical pain and torment involved in that kind of uh, exercise, although it was very, very grim. It was horrible because at the cross, as Jesus was crucified, he bore in himself the raging waters. The wrath of God at all human rebellion, at all missing the mark, at all guilt, And he did that to make sure that ultimately his people could be sheltered from all of it, could be delivered into an eternity of freedom, of forgiveness, of joy. Let me put it in another way. Jesus bore the buffeting waves so that you and I could enjoy eternal peace. And that's how this psalm applies to the person who's yet to trust in Jesus for themselves, like the skipper of a fishing vessel hearing tell that a storm is coming, steaming home to safety. Would you take hold of that refuge, that rescuer from the crashing waves of God's good and right anger that he promises will one day come? Now, how do you do that? Well, he tells us, Verse 5, I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you will forgive the iniquity of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. We take hold of Jesus as our hiding place by confessing. Not confessing to a priest or to a pastor. Confessing to God himself that you've rejected him and ignored him and gone your own way. And that you deserve to face the rising waters of his judgment in return. And yet asking him to forgive your transgression. To cover your sin, not to count your iniquity against you. Ultimately asking him to be your hiding place. See, the wonderful good news of Jesus is that he makes that offer to anyone who would turn to him like that. No matter the weight of guilt you might be carrying this morning, no one can out-sin the grace of God. 
And for anyone who does turn to him, forgiveness full and free is available. If you've never done that before, let me please, stronger than plead with you, to do so now. Now, perhaps you have done that before. Perhaps you're a, a Christian this morning. Perhaps you have been for quite some time. And you're wondering how this psalm, therefore, applies to you, if at all. Well, there is a fairly profound application to the person who's already trusted in Jesus for themselves, too. A means by which experiencing forgiveness is possible every day. Verses 8 to 11. Because if you've trusted in Jesus for your forgiveness, he is your refuge already. You can know that for sure. You know that you're ultimately safe from sin and all its consequences. And yet at the same time, the psalmist holds out the prospect of experiencing that forgiveness, of knowing joy and blessing every day. That is, I think, the sense of verses 8 to 11 of Psalm 32. Now, when I was a little lad, my grandfather took me for a donkey ride. And it might have just been the particular donkey in question. It might have been that I was an especially uncomfortable cargo. But the donkey wasn't really up for the gentle toddle along the path we were meant to walk along. He wanted to trundle off piste. And so I can vividly remember my grandfather's face getting redder and redder into a shade of purple as he grappled with the rope attached to the donkey's bridle for fear of me going off piste and into the woods saddled on a fairly lame-looking donkey. And I hope you won't be too offended when I ask whether you might not be just a bit like that donkey. Because if you're a Christian, the psalmist says that you might be. Verse 8. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I'll counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding which must be curbed with bit and bridle or it will not stay near you god's people very often need to be held close to him says the psalmist like a runaway horse or mule very often need the lord's rebuke need the weight of a heavy guilty conscience building up over time to draw us back to him and yet he wants us in a sense To learn not to be like that. Verse 9. To not be like the horse or mule. And instead to know the joy of walking closely with him day by day. And from the context of the psalm, I think, I take it one way we do that is by regularly confessing our sin to him. By, in the words of one old-fashioned theologian, by keeping a short account with God. And I do wonder if you're a Christian, if that's part of your Christian life. If you regularly confess your sin to God in prayer. I'm not asking you that to make you feel guilty. There'd be a certain irony about that, wouldn't there? But I'm asking you because if you don't, you may well be robbing yourself of the joy that's being held out for you. The joy of knowing that sin dealt with. That seems to be part of the big idea of the psalm. The joy of not only knowing that you're forgiven in a cerebral sense or even in a general sense, but experiencing that in a very direct way. And guilt can be a very strange thing, can't it? It can sort of dull as time passes. So if I do something for which I feel guilty, I might feel really bad about it today and bad about it tomorrow. But by next week, by next month, I might not feel the sting of it quite so much. 
And many of us might well be content to deal with our guilt in that kind of way. To just let it sort of dissipate. To feel less acute with the passage of time. But it never really leaves us. It sort of hangs around like a cloud over the back of our minds. And very often the only thing that needs to bring it back to our minds is a quick prompt. And we remember, oh, that feeling in the pit of your gut again about the thing you did perhaps years before. I wonder if you can see how Psalm 32 approaches guilt in a very different way than that. Not just waiting for it to dissipate or trying to forget it ever happened. The psalmist would have us front up. Deliberately confess it to God as part of walking closely with him. And that is, it's worth saying, a mark of often growing maturity as a Christian. That when you do stumble into sin, you don't just try and block it out of your mind and wait for the sense of guilt or shame to dissipate over time. You don't try and much less get your act together. And and sort of wash it away yourself before you can come back to God and speak to him about it. You get on your knees. And you name it. And you consciously bring it to him in prayer. Lord, I was proud in that situation. I cut that person down and tried to build myself up. I dishonored you. And I harmed them. And I am sorry. Please forgive me. Thank you so much for the cross of Jesus. Because there I know I am forgiven. Now, if that isn't something you tend to do very often, let me please encourage you to to introduce that specific kind of confession into your prayer life as a Christian. Not because I tell you to, but because the psalmist says there is joy to be found there in knowing and experiencing your sin forgiven. That is a means by which, verse 11, we can be glad in the Lord and rejoice in him. And his goodness to us. Blessedness and joy are found in confessing sin. And in knowing that it's been forgiven. Whether for the first time. Or as part of your everyday life as a Christian. And so let's ask the Lord for his help to grow in that together. To be a people who confess. And therefore a people who rejoice. And are glad in him. Let's do that now. Let me pray for us as we draw to our close. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous. Our God and Father, we thank you and praise you that you are one in whom we truly can be glad. We ask, Lord, that you would please help us to appreciate the depth of our problem, the reality of our sin against you. And would you please enable us day by day to bring that sin to the foot of your cross and to rejoice in the extraordinary forgiveness that you have made available in the person of Jesus Christ. And for those of us who don't yet know you, we ask, Lord, that you would please enable us to take hold of that forgiveness for the first time, of the joy you offer by trusting in that cross as their refuge. We ask all of these things in his name, And for his sake. Amen.